Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Mass incarceration has become a major topic of discussion and organizing on the left in the last decade or so, and rightly so, given how absolutely barbaric and soul-crushing that incarceration system is. But our guests today, Adana Usmani and John Clegg, have some problems with the way that we talk about that mass incarceration regime. They argue that although mass incarceration is, of course, characterized by massive racial disparities in who is in American prisons, fundamentally, mass incarceration is not a new Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander famously argued. It's a product of America's uniquely weak social democracy, and dismantling mass incarceration will require building American social democracy. Adonar and John have an article in the fall 2019 issue of Catalyst called The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration. It's an article that will at some point be part of a book on this topic, and I really cannot recommend the article enough. Adana Rismani is an assistant professor of sociology and social studies at Harvard and an editorial board member of Catalyst. John Clegg is a collegiate assistant professor in social sciences and a Harper Schmidt fellow at the University of Chicago. John joined me in the studio, and Adoner joined from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Also, before we move to that conversation, a bit of shameless self-promo. Megan Days and my book, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism, is very much done. In fact, I have a copy of it in my hands. You hear that? It's a hardcover. You can hear the, the, the beautiful sound of a hardcover. You can hear the uh, the pages there up in front of the microphone. It's incredible. I just got a copy in the mail of it today, and it is actually finished. It will be out officially on April 28th, and you can pre-order it on the Verso Books website or through that evil behemoth known as Amazon. Your money would be put to much better use if you order it through Verso, but pre-ordering through Amazon uh, does help us out as well. I will include a link in the show notes to the Verso site where you can order the book for 20% off. Okay, here's my conversation with Adoner and John. Adoner and John, welcome. Thanks, Micah. Thank you. First of all, I just want to say... This is an astoundingly good article. Anybody who's interested in the uh, issue of mass incarceration, uh, racism, uh, policing in society really should uh, sink their teeth into this. It's, it's long, but it's, uh, it's worth it. So congratulations to both of you for writing such a great article. Um, let's start with the, the basics. Uh, what is it uh, that led you to write this article and what, what are the, what's the standard account of the rise of mass incarceration and its uh, concomitant uh, racial disparities uh, in the in the literature. So I, I think maybe to begin with, because we're going to talk about what our take on the Sanders story is, it's worth um, talking, and our disagreements with it, um, it's worth talking uh, about the um, agreements as well, right? The, the, what, to what extent do we um, accept the standard narrative? Um, and I think the, the main thing I'd emphasize there is the kind of horrifying scale of mass incarceration um, as as we've come to understand it. There are about 2.3 million people today in America in prisons, jails, and detention centers. Um, and that is the largest population of prisoners in the entire world. Uh, it's um, significantly larger than the prison population of China, which is something like four times as large as America. The overall population is four times as big. And historically, there's there's never been, as far as we know, 
There's never been such a large share of the population in prisons, uh, in peacetime, in any other society. And that, that is a truly nightmarish scenario. And it's a nightmarish scenario for, specifically for those who are caught up in that system, who um, languish in horrifying conditions, brutal conditions, are dehumanized regularly and ritualistically, who are often kept in isolation um, and, and a form of torture, and who are um, uh, stigmatized uh, when they get out of, of, the, of, the, of that situation. Um, and that population that is um, dehumanized on a daily basis, 2.3 million people today, right now, um, languishing in those conditions, is of course, um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an experience that, that, that hits hardest or is, is, is um, most intensely felt among the poorest people in America and specifically uh, among racial minorities in America. So the, the, the incarceration rate is highest for Native Americans and African Americans. You, you, know, you have to ask yourself, what kind of society you know, does that to its own population? What kind of society uh, throws away uh, such a large share of its population into uh, uh, such dehumanizing conditions? Um, so in that sense, I think just recognizing the scale of the problem, recognizing that the fundamental problem is how to get out how to get those people out of jail, how to reduce the prison population in America uh, is, is the area that I would emphasize with which we fundamentally agree with, uh, with what we, we are going to call the standard story. But of course, you know, we're social scientists and we're specifically interested in, in questions of causality, not just because we're social scientists, but also because in order to do something about this situation, uh, it's important to know how it came about. And, uh, and in that case, we, we, we try to understand the causes of mass incarceration. And, and that's where I think we, we find some problems and difficulties in the standard story. Um, and we, we want to kind of intervene and, and I think correct what we take to be some, some, some pretty major mistakes that have been made in, in the literature. Absolutely, John. I think, let me just build on what John said, and maybe it would be helpful to sketch the standard story here a little bit, Micah. Sure. I think as John was saying, we share a normative orientation with the partisans of the standard story and more or less everyone who writes about mass incarceration. We were drawn to write about mass incarceration precisely because of the new Jim Crow. That was the first text I ever taught when I taught about mass incarceration. But the new Jim Crow and the standard story that it is probably responsible for is wanting in a few crucial respects. The argument roughly is that mass incarceration was a highly political phenomenon. Mass incarceration was a response in effect to the gains that African Americans made at mid-century in the form of the civil rights movement and the great migration before it. The idea was that this, these developments represented a challenge to America's racial order and to push back that challenge, to repress that challenge American politicians, particularly Southern politicians, saw law and order and this sort of bevy of punitive policies as a way to win the South, win the South from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party as part of this thing that we call the Southern strategy. And they pushed punitive policies in order to do that. And that set of punitive policies became the war on drugs and then became mass incarceration. Now, as we say in the piece, there are kind of three, at least three big problems with that view. One big problem with that view is that the view fixates, as I was saying, on the idea that 
this was a highly political phenomenon in which the panic about law and order was entirely politically constructed. But in fact, crime and violence rose really dramatically in the United States. They weren't fictitious. It wasn't invented by politicians. Actually, there was a large pronounced rise in crime and violence at mid-century, starting in the 1960s and going through to the 1990s. The standard story fixates, as many of your listeners will know, on the war on drugs, but actually drug prisoners make up a relatively small proportion of the American prison population. So the first issue is that the standard story ignores violence. The second issue is that the standard story has kind of mischaracterized the character and the change in the sorts of disparities that are so pronounced in American punishment. The standard story fixates on racial disparities, and rightly so in some ways, because the racial disparities, as John was saying, are really, really pronounced and absolutely abhorrent. But racial disparities both rose and fell over the life of mass incarceration, with the result that in 2007, when mass incarceration was at its peak, racial disparities were more or less the same as they were in 1970 when mass incarceration was beginning. So racial disparities aren't characteristic of what happened in mass during mass incarceration. In fact, what increased really dramatically, as we argue in the piece, are class disparities and not racial disparities. So that's a second piece that's amiss. And then finally, a third issue is that the standard story fixates on certain key actors at the federal level, certain presidential administrations. And really, the story of mass incarceration is a story of many different decisions made by an innumerable cast of actors at state and local levels, not the federal level, as so many scholars have argued. And overriding or, or the, the above those three things that you mentioned is the idea that you get from the very title of Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, right? Is that this is fundamentally about a system of racial control, that there were gains made uh, by black people through the civil rights movement. And so the rise of mass incarceration comes as a way of substituting out that former uh, form of social control of black people. Instead of having Jim Crow regulating uh, black people's behavior in America and, and, and restricting their life opportunities and chances in America, uh, you have mass incarceration. Right? And that's fundamentally what it's about is a, a new system of racial control of that population, right? Absolutely. And, and we wouldn't um, dispute all of that, right? We would say that the clearly um, the incarceration system in America is disproportionately impacting uh, black and brown communities in this country. Clearly, um, the, the over-representation uh, specifically of African-American people in jail um, creates a, a situation in which um, you know, racial inequalities are reproduced and reinforced through a kind of system of stigmatization. And, crim the, and the, the criminalization of African-American communities has led to a criminalized stereotype of African-Americans Absolutely. There's no question about that. We would, though, emphasize the difference with Jim Crow's, for instance, right? The historical uh, situation of Jim Crow uh, applied to African-Americans across class uh, lines. It, it, it applied to, to uh, wealthy African-Americans and, and to poor African-Americans. They were all excluded from voting in the South. They were all victims of um, a, a kind of extra legal violence that um, was predominantly in the South, but actually occurred throughout the United States. Um, in, in the contemporary era, in the era of mass incarceration, what we find is a, is a huge class differentiation within the African-American community, such that um, African-Americans with a college education, for instance, we, they've seen their inca incarceration rates fall 
at the same time as overall prison populations have risen and specifically uh, prison incarceration rates for uh, low-skilled African-Americans with lower levels of education and lower levels of income. Uh, Donner, you mentioned these these three things that are wrong with the with the standard story. Why don't you start with one of them, uh, like violence? Uh, can you talk about uh, the standard narrative of uh, violence in American society and what the relation to that is to the rise of mass incarceration? So this is, I think, in many ways, the heart of our criticism, which is that the standard story, as I was saying, has ignored the fact that violence arose very, very dramatically. Now, in some ways, as John was also saying earlier, there is something healthy about the standard story's skepticism about the simple connection between violence and punishment, because the point of our essay is not to argue that, oh, look, we're noting that violence rose and thus mass incarceration is the inevitable consequence of the rise in violence. Right. We know how the discussion of violence in society is weaponized by the right to then bring in this law and order rhetoric and lock people up and all of that, right? Precisely. And in fact, the sort of scholarly history of this is that the first the first people who we associate with the standard story, which is Michelle Alexander, and before Michelle Alexander, actually a sociologist named Catherine Beckett, they were actually in many ways responding to the view that American mass incarceration was not that much of a puzzle. America has a violence problem, so it has a punishment problem, big deal. They emphasized in response that actually punishment was this political choice, as I was describing earlier. And in our view, in our view, they're not wrong to argue that actually punishment was political in some sense, but they're wrong in the sense in which it was political. So another way of putting it is that we see the rise in violence as a necessary condition of the punitive turn, but not at all sufficient to explain policy, the policy response, other things about the United States. And in the piece, we emphasize the underdevelopment of social policy and the absence of social democracy as the critical kind of moderating conditions that make violence into punishment. But let's start then maybe with the rise in violence. Like where did the rise in violence come from? Sure. So we we look at the basic uh, statistics on violence and one of the most reliable ones is the homicide rate. It's the, it's the hardest to, to for the police and the courts and the and the officials to, to um, manipulate. Um, uh, so what we see in the homicide rate, uh, but also in in the other measures, is a beginning in the 1960s. In the in the sort of late 1960s, it really starts to take off uh, a sharp increase in homicides. They they double in about a decade from the late 60s to the mid mid 80s. Uh, that's a a homicide rate that's already quite high in American terms compared to other developed countries. Um, by the 80s, um, uh, America has the highest homicide rate of its entire 20th century history, and it, it dwarfs any comparable nation, right? I mean, the, the, the likelihood that you will die a violent death at the hands of someone else uh, is orders of magnitude above the, the likelihood in, in, in comparable developed nations. Um, so why does it begin in the, in the 60s and, 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 and take off and, and peak in the, in the 90s? Well, you know, we, take, we tell a story uh, specifically about uh, American cities. Um, and and we, what we find in, in the data, and we, we know we need to collect more data on this, but what we find in the existing data on, on, on violence is that the, it's really an urban phenomena. It, you see rise everywhere, but it's in the, in the cities that it rises um, more than anywhere else. Um, and so we have to look at sort of what's happening to American cities uh, in, in, in mid-century uh, and, and how they're changing to understand why you see this 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 wave of, of of crime and violence beginning in the late 60s, we we specifically look at at three 
key factors here. So we have we have a, a, a kind of deeper account of what's changed, what's unique about America, America's political economy um, that, that points to the fact that America industrialized um, not on the basis of, of absorbing uh, its own rural hinterlands, its own peasantry into the cities, into the factories, um, but rather um, it drew on uh, an immigrant working class population. And, and the reason for that has a lot to do with the legacy of slavery in the South, the plantation economy and the power of Southern planters uh, who are very adamant about tying uh, laborers and particularly African-American laborers, of course, um, to the land and to um, a kind of repressed, uh, repressive agriculture, labor repressive agriculture in the South. Um, that system breaks down in the in the in in the in the thir- particularly in the 20s and 30s and you see two waves of migration uh, not just to northern cities but to southern cities as well uh, of the african american peasantry of america's un- distinctly uh, unique history of of agriculture that is, is again rooted in 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 slavery that um peasantry is being absorbed into the cities at after the key difference is after America's already experienced its industrial boom. Uh, so the, the second wave of the Great Migration, which occurs in the 1950s and 60s, um, uh, the American uh, cities are already, already not just no longer expanding their industrial economy, they're actually shrinking it. Um, and as, as, as jobs increasingly leave, um, uh, both the factories are leaving um, to the suburbs and to the Sun Belt, and then finally uh, even abroad, and also, as automation uh, is 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 reducing demand for labor in these key sectors where unskilled laborers, particularly uh, you know newly arrived um, unskilled uh, laborers, are finding that therefore it much harder to, to to find a place in the job market. So the first wave of the southern migrants arrived in the, in the in the teens and the twenties. Most of them found jobs, albeit horrible jobs. The African American jobs were, were sort of segregated into the worst jobs. But in the second wave, uh, what, what's really distinctive about the second wave of the Great Migration is that they arrive uh, in a situation where jobs are off, job, so they're not even getting jobs at all. Um, and, and so the overall jobless rates are increasing, um, for, for, uh, particularly for unskilled men, um, even, as the overall, even, even as the economy is booming. The 60s is actually a period of prosperity. Um, but at the bottom end of the labor market, it looks very different. So that's the first dimension to the rise of crime, um, the, the, the kind of arrival of these new migrants uh, at the same time as, as these cities are experiencing deindustrialization. Um, the second uh, um, dimension is, of course, well known. It's re- commonly referred to as white flight. So just as the factories are leaving the cities, so too are middle class people and property owners. Um, and they're leaving uh, primarily to, to go to the suburbs as a result of a massive federal uh, federally subsidized construction boom uh, that took place in the 1950s with the laying out of the federal highway system and the subsidization of, of construction um, in in the suburb in suburban regions as well as subsidized home loans so uh, urban middle the urban middle class is overwhelmingly leaving the central city um, in part uh, as a reaction to the arrival of, of these new african american migrants um, but also in, in in large part um, to to avoid paying taxes, right? So the cities at that time in the 1960s are actually expanding social or trying to expand social policy, and there's pressure on local property owners to pay for that. And another unique feature, in addition to its delayed proletarianization, uh, another unique feature of the American economy uh, and political economy is that um, the fiscal 
power of the city to, to redistribute, to pay for its social services, is massively limited by the fact that it can't tax its own suburbs, right? And so, and so property owners have the capacity to avoid um, uh, paying taxes by simply moving across a, 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 a line, um, a, an urban boundary. Uh, and they did that in, on, on, on a large scale. And they did that not only in areas where African-Americans were arriving en masse, they were also doing that in, in predominantly white areas of, of the city that didn't see any uh, African-American migration. The, also, the African-American middle class did very similar things in many cities. Um, so the, the flight to the suburbs, of course, the effect of that was a massive reduction in the tax base that the city could um, derive its, its, its social services from. And of course, uh, those social services were, were, were negatively impacted. So we see a deterioration in pr the provision of education, of social welfare, of housing, and also of policing, right? The, the, the funds to all of these uh, institutions were being um, sapped uh, at the same time as this uh, deindustrialization was kind of undermining the bottom end of the labor market. So those are my two uh, factors, and um, I think that the third factor is 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 the just the effect of this, right? And the the effect of this, particularly in in areas that were concentrated, um, uh, where African Americans would be concentrated, so uh, areas in the city that, due to long history of of, of, of housing segregation, uh, were disproportionately both African American and poor. What you see in this time where joblessness is is massively impacting the life chances of, of residents is uh, a, a sharp rise in, um, in crime, um, in interpersonal violence, in, for, for, for we argue for many different reasons. Um, in part, uh, you know, property crime is simply a function, I think, of, of poverty, right? That insofar as, as the legitimate means of income are being taken away, uh, people look for other ways of, of feeding themselves, literally. Um, but then there are many other aspects of what what we describe as like essentially violent crime that that are symptoms of this transformation insofar as the existing means of maintaining communities are being uh, undermined at the same time as an illicit economy is replacing illicit one so the inability to to make a, a legitimate income creates the basis for an illicit economy. And of course, an illicit economy is, tends to be regulated by violence, right? There's no appeal to law and order possible. Conflicts are resolved um, uh, in direct violent m means. And that tendency to, to sort of concentrate illicit activity, illicit economic activity in, in the poorest neighborhoods, the most racially segregated neighborhoods, uh, at the same time as um, the, the kind of means of legitimate uh, income generation are taken away, is in our view a kind of a kind of cauldron, right, for producing the the the, the kinds of skyrocketing violence rates of violence that we've observed in the data. So, just to summarize what you just said, I mean, you made basically two important points. One, there was a rise of violence in, especially in urban communities, uh, during the period uh, immediately preceding and during the rise of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And two, that there is a kind of social basis to that rise in violence. The, 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 so, the social mm -hmm. conditions that were present in those neighborhoods were what fueled that violence. Uh, Donner, do you 
feel like in the standard account of the rise in mass incarceration that that violence the violence that is again has this social basis that that it, that rises because of social conditions in these neighborhoods do you feel like that violence is downplayed or what what is the standard uh, account of that violence and its relationship to mass incarceration yeah i think the simple answer is that it's it's downplayed there's an evidentiary debate here, like partly the debate here is that sometimes the argument you hear is that actually what's changing in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s are policing practices. And so what's happening is that police are detecting crime that they previously weren't detecting, and that's giving the illusion of a rise. But as John said in the piece, we explain that when you look at other forms of statistics, when you look at mortality statistics, which aren't corrupted by this issue, or when you look at victims' reports, which aren't also which are also not corrupted by this issue, you see more or less the same patterns, with the result that no real serious criminologists who look at these issues disagree that crime rose really substantially in the United States. So what I think that raises is okay, so the issue is not really an evidentiary one. It's not really possible to claim that crime didn't rise. So why is it that partisans of the standard story are so committed to the view that crime didn't matter. And I think part of it has to do with what I was saying earlier, which is that they're committed to the idea that this is a real political choice to criminalize certain kinds of behavior that the state could well just sort of ignore. And that's why the key figure in the standard story is the person who deals weed or something like that. Um, but the other issue here is that I think the standard story shares actually this weird commonality with a conservative view of crime, which is the idea that if there is crime, then perhaps people are to blame for it. And perhaps maybe even mass incarceration is justified. And since we don't want to justify mass incarceration, we end up minimizing or denying the extent of crime. But in fact, one of the main objectives of the piece is to break that equation. One of the things we want to argue is, in fact, that one can talk forthrightly about crime, offer the kind of social analysis that John offered, which in effect amounts to the observation that crime is an index of oppression. Right. That's basically what John was arguing. Crime is an index of oppression. And what follows from the fact that crime is an index of oppression is a totally different policy agenda than the conservative policy agenda. Yeah, I mean, this drives me crazy, not only in a discussion of mass incarceration, but in discussions of all kinds of social issues in the United States or even around the world. Uh, this argument that you sometimes get from the left that, that downplays the the existence of basically things that that result from poverty and other social problems it's like yes these communities like in in the standard account of mass incarceration black poor and working class communities are are uh facing you know deindustrialization are impoverished don't have the kind of social democratic welfare you know, safety net that, that that they should have uh, and yet somehow there are no bad consequences from this that people right. do not uh act in you know antisocial and, and bad ways as a result of this and and as you have made clear like part of the reason for trying to avoid talking about that is because the the right wing ver- versions the right the right wing uh uh lessons to be taken from that are are, are the policy agenda that comes from that are, are clear we, we want to avoid that but we also can't act like uh when you are impoverished when you are subject to awful social conditions that uh things like crime and other bad things that we we don't want to see are not a consequence of that i think it's a i think it's a danger of, of in some ways you know, romanticizing the very conditions that we're supposedly opposing, right? Yeah. Like romanticize the the um, 
the 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 life of poverty and life of exclusion and life of of racism uh, that that black poor people experience um, leads people to kind of essentially deny the very oppression that they're uh, describing. Right? It's to to say that um, uh, to, if we, if we took seriously the the kind of despair, right? That that we should all recognize is the result of of denying people legitimate means of providing for themselves and their families if we took seriously that despair then we wouldn't be at all surprised to learn uh that um uh that these kinds of um uh patterns of violence are, are result from that but i think in a sense in, if we if we deny the result uh we're we're effectively in my view denying that despair we're denying the the the, the real costs that are being um uh, uh, uh placed on 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 you know, again, disproportionately black and brown poor people in america and so part of the reason why it's so important to bring all of this up is to say that the rise in mass incarceration of course we think that the rise in mass incarceration is bad as hopefully we've made clear in this conversation already but that it is happening in response to a real social problem which is the rise of violence especially in urban neighborhoods uh and you all talk about uh the you know something that has become a bit more common in these discussions which is that um of course we know that among white Americans, that rise in violence led to more punitive attitudes. But it's also true in black communities too, right? That that uh, black people uh, in America, in response to that violence, w- wanted more of those punitive uh, social policies as well, which makes sense because no one wants to live in neighborhoods where violence is rampant, where crime is rampant. Um, and it's uh, also true that you uh, or that you argue that. Uh, the punitive responses that make up mass incarceration um, were one way of responding to that rise in violence, but not the only way, right? That instead of uh, increasing prison sentences and, and, and putting more cops on the street and, and all of the punitive things that, that make up the, the, the mass incarceration regime, uh, we could have had a, basically a social democratic uh, response but we didn't. Right. Uh, Donna, can you talk right. a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's even a little bit stronger than we could have had a social democratic response. There was a moment in American politics where, you know, certain political leaders thought this was the right way to respond. Right. This is really, in my view, this is the story of the late 1960s and the Johnson administration. All the key documents of that administration kind of make this clear. And let me just interrupt real quick because uh, this is one of the aspects of what's come to become the standard account. Uh, that the argument that like liberals in the 1960s, the Johnson administration, and, and then liberals after that uh, were essentially up to the same thing as Nixon and the reactionary right wing law and order Republicans. And you argue in the piece that that's actually not true. That the that the liberal uh, you know, even if they were deficient in some ways, the, the liberal response to this rise in violence was actually uh, pretty decent from a socialist or social democratic point of view, right? Yeah, it was a social democratic response. Fundamentally, I think what we have to understand is that people are not wrong at all to say that it was deficient in some ways. We just need to understand the precise way in which it was deficient. So it wasn't deficient in the sense that it identified a social problem that didn't actually exist, which is one of the things that is often argued. It also wasn't deficient in the sense that it identified the wrong set of policies with which that social problem should be attacked. It was deficient in the sense that liberals weren't actually 
able, they didn't have the political capacity, you might even argue the political will to commit the kind of resources that would be required to really fight crime at its roots. And this is one of the arguments that we make that people are often most surprised to hear. So it's worth walking through in a little bit of detail. One of the things that isn't often understood is that fighting crime at its roots through social policy actually requires a massive amount of redistribution. The reason for that is that social policy, unlike penal policy, unlike prisons and police, is indiscriminate in a couple of different ways. So penal policy is hyper-targeted. You throw prisons and police at that very, very small fraction of poor people who end up running afoul of the law. Whereas social policy, to be politically feasible, generally has to be targeted universally. And if it's not universal, it has to be targeted to all poor people, which is a much, much larger pool than the pool of people who commit crime and violence. And it's also targeted over a large portion of the life course. So like today, even in the United States, this is, people are always surprised to hear this. Even in the United States, which combines the world's, like a world historic carceral state with a, the developed world's stingiest social democratic state, even in the United States, more money is spent on social policy than on penal policy. So in effect, what happened in the 1960s, and actually this is a story of both previous and subsequent administrations as well, is that the federal government did not have the capacity, the political capacity due to the underdevelopment of social democracy to really attack these social problems with sufficient social policy. There was an anemic social policy effort, of course, but that's why in our story, so much of the problem lies in the underdevelopment of American social policy, the underdevelopment of American redistribution, the basic incapacity of the American working class to take more from the rich and distribute to the poor. Well, right. You're getting there at the end, exactly the, the, the question that you're saying that it's not that liberals were totally wrong in what they're proposing in the 1960s. It's that the balance of class forces was shifting in the way exactly. where the, the working class wasn't able to, you know, they, they didn't have the power uh, to carry out that liberal Before, agenda, which yeah. was being proposed in the 60s, right? Exactly. I, I would just say, and this is something that we've gone back and forth as we formulated the argument, but I would just say that sometimes there's a temptation to make the 60s this pivotal moment in American history, the idea is that if only the civil rights movement and the labor movement had gotten their stuff together in the 1960s, maybe the Johnson administration could have fought crime at its roots and none of this would have transpired. That might be a bit too optimistic, a counterfactual, and we say some reasons for this towards the end of the piece. The gap between the United States and Europe in terms of social spending and social policy was really already a huge yawning gap by the 1960s. If you take Europe as kind of the index of what a counterfactual United States would have had to do if it were to fight these problems at its root, the United States was already a laggard, a welfare laggard basically by 1930. The gap between the US and Europe opened up between 1890 and 1930. So this is really, in my view, a story of the persistent underdevelopment of American social democracy and not even really 
a conjunctural story about the 1960s, though no doubt that mattered a little bit. When you make the point that um, in the 1960s, obviously what was also going on in addition to uh, an expansion of the social democratic welfare state was the war in Vietnam. And you all write that, uh, quote, social spending was profoundly limited by the demands of the war. Imperialism abroad killed reform at home, unquote. So that's part of the story is that at the precise moment when maybe there would have been an additional expansion of the social democratic welfare, welfare state like we saw in the 30s uh, because the U.S. was uh, waging this imperialist war in Vietnam. It w- it, we were limited in our in our ability to do that. No, that's totally true. That's totally true. And I, I would just add to that um, that, yeah, there's, there's a kind of fiscal constraint at the national level uh, that kicks in and there's a kind of guns or butter question at the in the 60s that, where guns is the answer. But the the for, for us, the key thing to understand about um, about specifically criminal justice policy in the, in the U.S. is that it, overwhelmingly it's the county and the state that bears the burden of um, of addressing crime, and 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 thus those are the those are the two units of the American state system that have the hardest time um, 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 basically redistributing from from rich to poor. Um, you know, if the city tries to do it, as we've already seen. People leave the city. But even the state has a lot of limited capacity to raise revenue, right? Like, you know, Mississippi can't tax the dot-com billionaires in San Francisco, right? Um, and they never will be able to, right? And, and there's a sense that insofar as the federal government is explicitly forbidden, actually, by the Constitution from interfering with criminal justice policy, apart from, you know, interstate criminal justice policy, which is the FBI's remit, right? That it's, it's somehow... Um, uh, only, only, only regulating uh, interstate crime. Um, the, 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 the institutions that are in place to address a very real problem are exceptionally incapable of doing so in the U.S. Right. That's, that's another thing to, to take very seriously in terms of, in terms of why um, the, the, the cheap option, you know, criminal uh, incarceration as, a, as an austerity measure, was was the first option in any particular local and state administra- administrations on, 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 their, on their table. Well, and, and, and the thing to just add to John's account is just to emphasize, and maybe we've already said this, but just to be clear, that state and local officials needed to respond because the public was freaking out about crime, right? We show some public opinion polls in the piece, and now there's a lot of work on this in general in the field of criminal justice research that shows that people are actually panicking about crime. And the thing that is so important to note about these officials that John was describing is that in the United States, they're actually democratically elected, a lot of them. They are subject to election. DAs are subject to election. Judges are subject to election. Sheriffs are subject to election. They have a lot of power some places. State legislatures make a lot of these policies. They're subject to election. So public panic is filtering in to the American political system. And when the federal government fails to take affirmative social policy actions, people are worried about the rise in crime and it sort of falls to local and state governments to tackle this problem on the cheap. And the way that you're describing this kind of diffuse yet coherent way that the mass incarceration regime comes to be. I like that. uh, Yeah, you like that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is that... uh, Obviously, like the new Jim Crow type thesis, I don't think Michelle Alexander says this uh, explicitly, but it's easy to develop a kind of conspiratorial uh, explanation for the rise in mass incarceration if that's your view 
uh, that that there is some kind of cabal somewhere that is, that is consciously planning uh, this turn towards mass incarcera- incarceration out of their uniquely evil. You know, they're like they're they're doing the Mister Burns fingers somewhere uh, in order to establish this new racialized uh, social control regime. Uh, but your explanation, as you just said, uh, is one in which there's an actual small d democratic response to real social conditions uh and that is what creates um you know as i said uh, through through the diffuseness of the american political system at the local and state and federal level creates a a coherent mass incarceration regime right yeah so i think there's no better uh case study of this than 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 um james foreman jr's uh book locking up our own which is about the history of mass incarceration in dc uh, so DC, um, for those who haven't read the book, uh, DC is a um, uh, constituency, uh, the, the only sort of small urban constituency where um, legal um, questions, questions of sentence length, for instance, uh, can be um, voted on uh, locally, uh, right? Because the most of the decisions about uh, about law and sentencing uh, occur at the state level, um, but DC, of course, is is its own state in a way. Not, not of course, actually, but it manages its own criminal justice system. And so James Foreman tells the story about how uh, we start to get increased sentences, increased sentence length, and massively increased incarceration rates in DC in the seventies and eighties. And this is a period in which the DC uh, local administration, the, 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 the local government, uh, becomes overwhelmingly African-American, right? The African-Americans uh, dominated the, the city council um, from, the, from the mid-70s on. Um, and, and they are, what you, what you can see is that they aren't preferring the punitive option, right? That's not their first option, right? That's not their first uh, d- desire. Their first desire is to do something, anything, to reduce the levels of, of violence in, in uh, poor communities in D.C., uh, they're under a lot of pressure to do so from their constituents. Many of them are themselves radical, have roots in the kind of black power movement. Uh, but they do need to do something. They need to be seen to be do, do something about first the heroin epidemic in the, in the 70s and then the crack epidemic in the 80s. Um, and they choose in the context of, a, in our view, very, a very constrained choice. So maybe even choice is the wrong word. But the, the, they are left with the only option on the table, the kind of lock them up and throw them away the key option because the the ability because at the same time their constituents are demanding jobs right their constituents are demanding better social services their constituents are demanding uh you know health care for addicts right but they can't provide that for their constituents all they can provide is b- both because of fiscal constraints and the nature of the relationship with the federal and state governments all they can provide is this cheap option of uh, more police and more prisons. Which, Relatively cheap option, by the way, I should say. Of course, it does. it is costly, but compared to the alternative, it's relatively cheap. And not coincidentally, this is the exact same story as urban governance by the new crop of black elected officials as a whole throughout urban America, right? Like the, <laughs> people, many of whom have roots in black power, black people get elected to the mayorships of, of uh, large and mid-sized American cities and they come from you know left or left leaning backgrounds, and yet uh, in very short order they are stuck with carrying out an austerity regime in their cities. Precisely. And so what I would emphasize there is, in part, right, this is a story of American institutions and what cities can do given the fiscal landscape in the United States. 
But in large part, it's also a story of the underdevelopment of the American social democratic movement, the underdevelopment of the American labor movement, because at some level, this is also a story about the inability of these political elites and the movements with which they're associated to hold the feet of the people with wealth to the fire, right? It's the inability of movements to really succeed at redistributing resources from rich areas to poor areas. And this, in many ways, in our view, this is kind of the heart of the issue of American mass incarceration. And yeah, before we move on to that, I just want to reemphasize your your point about it being cheaper to lock people up than actually provide social democratic policies and meet people's needs. Because you mentioned in the piece that there is a talking point that we hear often about how it's uh, more expensive to lock someone up for a, a year than to send a kid to Harvard or something like that, right? right. We, we right. hear this all the time. Uh, and you know, it's a it's a compelling talking point, but the I've used it myself. Yeah, <laughs> but what's uh, behind? If you think about that that point uh, very hard, the 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 upshot of it is that we are carrying out this kind of fo- totally irrational policy of mass incarceration. We're like flushing money down the toilet. By the by, the way, I, I assume that is what is behind the efforts of some on the right, like the Koch brothers, who are suddenly interested in mass incarceration because they they believe this. It's like from an austerity point of view, like oh, we're yeah. we're flushing this money down the toilet to uh, to incarcerate these people. We we should stop mass incarceration and thus uh, save money. Um, <laughs> but but as you pointed out, like it's it's you know. It's a very small number of uh, people. I mean, it's it's the largest population in the world, of course. But in comparison to the larger population of the United States, it's a very small number of people exactly. who, who get caught up in, in the criminal uh, justice system. And because that's a smaller number, it's far, far cheaper uh, to do that rather than uh, providing social democratic policies for them. I guess if you had to, uh, you know, uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this. but uh, And maybe I should have mentioned this uh, in the beginning. If I were a good editor, I would have, like, hit the <laughs> listener over the head with this in the very beginning the the single sentence of of the piece that's kind of a a summary of what your argument is is that the story of american mass incarceration is the story of the underdevelopment of american social democracy um so so i guess that that leads to uh you know where that naturally leads you to uh then wonder is what is your um what's your policy proposal then or what's the policy agenda um, given, given that, as, as, as the argument is, that, that the mass incarceration is the story of the underdevelopment of American social democracy, what is the agenda, the social democratic agenda, uh, to dismantle the American mass incarceration system? Well, I think it, we can start by clarifying how different it is from the kind of way in which the Grover Norquists of the world think about it, right? As you brought up, the you do hear this argument on the right all the time that, in fact, American mass incarceration is too expensive and we can scale back a little bit and save from some money, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think the thing that is so absurd about this perspective is that in so many ways, the problem of American punishment is precisely that we don't commit enough resources to our violence prevention policy. Now, in large part, what I mean about what I mean by that is that we don't commit enough money to social policy, right? This is the theme that's been running throughout our discussion so far. America is a laggard in the extent of its welfare state. It's one of the, if not the richest country in the world today. It could commit far more resources to the development 
of these areas in which crime concentrates. And so, so much of this is a story, as we were saying, of the underdevelopment of social policy. And so the agenda is revitalized social democracy. I think Marie Gottschalk in an interview was once asked if you could wave your wand and ha enact one policy item to solve the problem associated with American mass incarceration, what would you do? And she said, Medicare for all. And I would totally co-sign that, right? So, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly for uh, a group of socialists, uh, the, the, if you're saying that uh, to, to reduce mass incarceration, we need a rebuilt and revitalized uh, social democracy in America. Well, how do you get social democracy in America? You do it through an organized and activated and militant working class, right? So if you want to dismantle mass incarceration in America, rebuild the American labor movement. Yes. Yeah, sure. Exactly. The other thing that I would say here that I wanted to emphasize is in, re in, in reaction to the point that you made about Grover Norquist, which is that in many ways, you know, look, so it is the case that for the foreseeable future in a country like this one, there will be some people who do terrible things to other people, right? And these are people who will, in other words, need some sort of response. The state has an obligation to keep people safe. It has an obligation as a consequence to maybe at times incapacitate and confine people. I think so much of the barbarity of American mass incarceration is actually that we do so much of this on the cheap. We crowd people into prison cells that are entirely inhumane and don't take their rehabilitation seriously. The Nordics who do this much better spend much more money per capita on prisoners. And so this is another reason that the Grover Norquist agenda is just insane. To actually make confinement and incarceration at much, much lower levels, of course, after we've, you know, flipped the switch on our social democratic revolution. To make confinement much, much more humane requires committing so many more resources to the problem of violence and social disorder and to really make it rehabilitative that I think we just can't have anything to do with those types of people. Our, our agenda is, is squarely a left-wing agenda. And just to sort of follow up on that, I think we should be honest that we don't know exactly how this is going to work, right? We don't. Our, our story of um, the origins of, the, of mass incarceration is really about looking at economic and political constraints, which are also political constraints precisely to the kinds of movements we're talking about, right? You know, is it really possible to revitalize the labor movement given these constraints, right? In some ways, they we don't know how hard those constraints are. John is but, bringing <laughs> ice-cold determinism to bear on this conversation. But what we do, what we do know, I think, is what won't work, right? What we do know yeah. is that the the current uh, proposals on the table among Democratic um, uh, primary candidates, including actually Bernie Sanders, the current proposals on the t table are, you know, uh, decriminalize marijuana, reduce sentence lengths for low-level drug offenders, and uh, crack down on private prisons. And, and I think we do know that that is not going to work. We've seen that happen in various states over the last decade. We've seen all those policies gradually put into place and we've seen very little effect on overall prison populations and um we have a friend chris seeds a, a professor at uc davis who's looked into these um changes in specifically sentence length and 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 he argues that it, at the same time as many of these states are passing laws 
reducing sentence lengths for the low-level offenders, they're simultaneously increasing sentence lengths for the so-called serious offenders, right, the violent offenders. Um, and they're doing that in part as a trade-off, right, as a way of establishing uh, that, that, you know, th- to reduce the, the fear that, that they might otherwise be creating among their constituents. Yeah. But the net effect of doing that, of course, is more or less nothing, right? If you increase sentence length for, for violent offenders but decrease sentence length for, for non-violent offenders, all you're doing is shifting the population within the prison towards this so-called more deserving group yeah. of punishment, right? And so not only are you not actually reducing prison populations, you're not actually, in our view, addressing the fundamental problem, which is that we think people are deserving of prison where they shouldn't be, and that there is a re- real problem of serious violent offenses. So in a sense, you're, you're picking the easy cases, it makes sense as, as a reform movement, maybe even as a prison abolition movement, to pick the easy cases. Um, but at the same time, I think it's, it undermines the movement in the long run, because in the long run, not only do you have to face the reality of, of, of the fact that most of our prisoners are not these nonviolent, low-level offenders, but also this generation, this millennial generation, has been living through a period of continually falling crime rates, right? And, and that's, I think, created a sort of complacency a sense that we all agree, right? That we all agree there should be less people in jail. Um, but as soon as that starts to reverse, and, and it will start to rise again at some point, right? As soon as that violent offences start to rise again, our analysis suggests that the, 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 the very thing that happened in the 70s will probably happen again, because the political and economic constraints that gave us mass incarceration then are still very much in place today. The only way to really fight mass incarceration is to fight those economic and political structures that produced it in the first place. And before I uh, go to you, Donner, I assume uh, your argument would not be like, don't legalize marijuana. It would just be that legalization of marijuana would, is not going to be this sort of like wave the wand and all of a sudden the, the, the mass incarceration regime is, is ended. Absolutely. And it can't come at the expense of other populations that tend to spend yeah. much more time in jail. And, and, and in, in, you know, the life without parole is one of the l- fastest growing uh, sentences in this country. And that is a death sentence, right? And, and you know, it, it's inc- incredible to me that we're not focusing on those cases, given the inhumanity of a sentence like, length like that. Um, and, and instead, you know, it makes sense that it's the easy political m- move to make. Um, but I think it really undermines us in the long run. Right. And the upshot of that, uh, as as you argue in the piece, as others like Marie Gottschalk argue, uh, is, you know, we're, we're going to need to rethink uh, how we uh, deal with people who have done really bad stuff, not just exactly. smoke some weed, but like yeah. carried out violent crimes against other people, including exactly. things like murder. Right. And I think this is the critical point. I think earlier we were talking about the consequences of so many people believing the standard story. And one of the things, you know, standard story has had so many salutary consequences. John and I wouldn't have written this article had we not read the new Jim Crow. The new Jim Crow awakened us to the injustice of American mass incarceration. But one of the unfortunate consequences of the hegemony of that perspective is that people haven't taken violence seriously. And as a consequence, on the left, these sorts of two intuitions can coexist in this weird way. People can both be prison abolitionists, but also they can be extremely punitive about violence when it does occur. I mean, sometimes leftists have extremely punitive intuitions about violence. And in many ways, one of the consequences of taking our story seriously is that you can retain your radical criticism of American mass incarceration 
only insofar as you rethink your punitiveness. It's actually really, really important to realize that so many people inside American prisons have done terrible things to other people, but that doesn't sanction the kind of punitive response that the American state has taken. Another consequence of the failure to take violence seriously relates to our earlier discussion about the origins of crime, the sort of social analysis of crime that John offered, which is that the standard story actually has the effect also of making people ineffective warriors against the racial disparities that are so outrageous in American criminal justice. So we know, as we say in the piece, the racial disparities range always in about like the range of five or six to one. There are about five times per capita as many African-Americans in prisons as white Americans in terms of a comparison of the incarceration rates. The standard story encourages us to think of those racial disparities as driven by the racism of police, prosecutors, judges, juries, etc. So the idea is that various sorts of biases, implicit and explicit at every stage of the criminal justice system, explain why we have so many more African-Americans in prison than white Americans. But our best data actually suggest that the lion's share of this racial disparity is driven not by racism inside the criminal justice system, but by racial inequality outside the criminal justice system. In other words, racial inequalities, this sort of racial disparity and oppression that we've been discussing throughout the interview manifests itself in racial disparities in crime. And that's what explains racial disparities in mass incarceration. So the result of all of this is that if you want to fight racial disparities in mass incarceration, as we must, if you want to undo one of the most heinous things about American mass incarceration, it will not be sufficient to simply ensure that we have a racism-free criminal justice system. You can make every prosecutor, every policeman, every judge woke as can be, but that will change very little about the actual racial disparities in American prisons. The only agenda that can do that is a root cause attack on racial inequalities and oppression. And that's another reason why it's so important to challenge the standard story, not because it you know, the standard story is so important because it has made us outraged, but to make us effective warriors for the things that we want in this world, we have to dispense with the standard story. So it sounds like the uh, Usmani Clegg agenda for criminal justice reform doesn't include like cognitive bias training or something against cops. <laughs> well, just just to be clear, we're not denying that there are biases, right? We're, we, we believe that there's a lot of evidence at every level of the criminal justice system that biases totally. exist. What we're, what we're interested in is 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 what, a, what effect that has, right? To what extent is that bias driving the overall disparities? And it is. It's driving about that disparity by something like 20 to 25 percent of the disparity, as far as we can tell, is is driven by implicit or explicit racial bias at every level. But that 20 to 25 percent, while it's important to fight, so it is, it is important to, to retrain police. It is important to, to challenge the explicit and implicit biases that occur in all these levels. It's not going to be sufficient to, uh, to, to, to challenge the overwhelming uh, inequalities within the system, which, as, as, as Adana was mentioning, are fundamentally driven by the overwhelming inequalities outside the prison in everyday life that we can see all around us. Right. Amen. 
Well, uh, after finishing reading this article the other today, I felt like I had just uh, had my everything that I thought I knew about the American criminal justice system. I was I was totally rethinking it. So, uh, it, as I mentioned earlier, it's a fantastic article, and it, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, interview. But that's a testament to the uh, amount of ground uh, that you all very fruitfully cover in the piece. Uh, so, thank you for coming on to talk about it. Thank you, thanks, Micah. Micah. Thanks for the invite. You can listen to other episodes of The Vast Majority as well as our other Jacobin podcasts at Jacobin Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please do rate and review us as that really makes a difference in people finding us. And we don't ask you for any money on this show, but it's definitely not free. So please subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Buy Jacobin swag at our online store, subscribe to our journal Catalyst, or do whatever else that involves giving us money. Please and thank you.